You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Welcome back to another episode of the Hockey News on the E podcast. We're here for our holiday edition episode. The Last one before the new year starts up, and we take a bit of a break in between then. Joined by Justin Coe, I'm Jacob Stoller. As always, Justin, how are we doing? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Pretty good. Had a uh, Hanukkah dinner last night, and what was like the fifth night, so it was kind of unorthodox, but uh, made it work. Made it work. Right, right. So I had uh, I had a bit of a, a crisis of hockey conscience last night. Okay. Uh, so I was supposed to go to the Red Wing game. I was a little bit under the weather, so I watched it from home. And um, I'm watching the digital ads. So first okay. off, how do you feel about the digital ads? Do you have a feeling? I feel that the whole, like, I think the premise is good. I think that watching it when it gets bad is 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 infuriating. You're probably too young to even remember when we had Foxtrack, aren't you? I was probably negative the... something. I was born in 99. I'm an infant. <laughs> right. So do you even know what it is? It was, I, it was, it was the blue puck. It's like a medicine. So, oh, I know what that is. I've seen, I've seen the videos of that. Yeah. Those are yeah. not well, what so make me go nuts. It reminds me of that. I mean, the idea for people who don't know was to make the puck more easily followable. Yeah. Or... They had like a blue fire behind it, right? Correct. Correct. And so this was in Fox, I, I don't know, mid nineties. And it was very off-putting for people like ourselves who don't have trouble following the puck. So I'm, I'm sitting there watching the digital ads last night, and it's giving me sort of flashbacks to that because of the animations is really what drives me crazy. And then when they go into the corner and they sort of cut to the actual dashboard ads, I find that really infuriating. So I was sitting there like mad about it, and this is how I'm going to connect it to the ECHL because then I had this epiphany that I was being okay. hypocritical because people that are NHL fans – if they go watch an ECHL game, they are shocked at the number of ads that are on the ice. So, uh, for instance, the Red Wing game at Little Caesars Arena, I, I counted it last night. They have only 10 ads on the ice surface itself. In Fort Wayne, where I am located, and I might even be off on this number, but I, I went and tried to count the most recent picture I had. They had 32 ads. On oh, the ice. God. So 32 versus 10. Like, they will squeeze anything they can on there and i don't blame them but i guess the argument justin would be that when you're watching echl game the ads on the ice even a large quantity of them aren't distracting you as much as going to get used to it right whereas like the digital ads they just it, it's so much moving picture and changing that it if it doesn't grab your attention it's insane well I, it depends on who you talk to like it's fair, white it's fair. white noise to me now like i don't even notice them but sometimes I will post videos or photos and people who are not used to seeing Fort Wayne games and they're not the only ones that do it, but they sell the most ads of any team I know. Um, they're like, wow, how do you even see the puck? But at this level, people need to keep in mind, like you need every available dollar you can get. So if what you would you can, estimate an on ice ad goes for? 
Oh boy, that's a that's a good question. I'd really just be guessing, but let's just guess, and then I'll, we'll follow up on the next podcast. <laughs> and then in the two weeks, if you don't get crap from someone, we'll uh, okay. Just a pure guess, and I really should know this, and I did know it and forgot. But I'm going to guess a, a large ad, yeah, on the ice at a big minor league market, maybe fifty thousand dollars. That's kind but of what I, I, would I could be totally off there. No, I would think so because think about how many games do they play at home. How many? How many? Uh, they would play uh, so seventy-two game season, so thirty-six games at home. And they the average seven thousand seven thousand fans a game. Yes, plus prime, prime optimal viewing. That would check out. I would yeah. think. I'm saying of the ad, um, sure. that would make sense. Sure. So I mean, the point is, you know, you need the money at this level. Any any yeah. cent you could get is important. But totally. the other the other thing that sort of was on my mind last night was, and I thought about it for a long time. You were was, sentimental last night, it seems like. A you little were really bit, deep in thought. Well, sometimes it's easy to get in the bubble of of covering the minor leagues. And and when you see things happen at the NHL, like you sort of compare them. So this is a good example for me. Fair. Was, was Dan Kelly, uh, and the the linesman, and Michael Bunting. So, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I watched it, and I know people are just losing their minds about it. And I watched it a few times. And just full disclosure, very low level. But I used to referee for a bunch of years, too. So right. I, I at least know the rule book and some of the, you know, the concepts. So I watched it and I was like, I don't even see what people are all up in arms about. Mm -hmm. And I think the perspective for me is I see that crap at the minor league level all the time where you have yeah. to, a guy does not want to leave the ice and you kind of have to get him off the ice. I mean, something that goes to, on at this level is the warmups. You know, the, the thing that's going around now is you want to be the last guy off the ice during warmups. So mm -hmm. there are some guys that do it just to tweak the opposing team in their own rank. So like, yeah, uh, I guess what I would argue is I think you make a good point. And I think that actually your perspective as a former referee is really, really important. And I'm going to make a point and producer Connor just inter interrupted me with the same point. So thank you, producer Connor. But I don't think that Bunty was really resisting. Like that's kind of where like it's twofold for me. I don't think, and I've seen a lot of clips of ECHL where guys are very much resisting and like, and I, and I feel bad for those refs. I think the problem I have with Kelly is I don't think Bunting was resisting. And I don't think he really snapped at Kelly until he was really had a good handle on him. That's my, the first point I make. And two, I think it's a, in that situation, I think it's a double standard because the second Bunting, even like, if he let's let's say let's say Kelly grabs him even a bit more aggressively and Bunting tries to resist it and it doesn't look the best for Bunting, whatever it may be, Bunting's the one that gets a penalty for that. You can't touch the referee. So that's my like, what would you think about that? Like there was no pushback from Bunting. You can't touch the ref. What's he supposed to do? Look, I, I totally get it. And I'm not saying what Dan Kelly did was textbook, but if you let a guy linger on the ice and it goes well, out of control, though? but he wasn't um, doing anything. Uh, he he was not like sure. I'm just gonna come with you. I, look, I understand what you're saying. I mean, right? Yes. Was he being overly um, egregious and not leaving the ice? No. But I also looked right. at what Dan Kelly was doing, and I was thinking that was not overly physical to me. But maybe yeah. I'm just colored by the fact that I see this in the minor leagues where players are just not willing to leave the ice, and yeah. you need to have this, you know, mentality like, look, you need to listen to me. I'm telling you get off the ice. If you're not listening to me, I need to sort of direct you that way. 
I think there's um, also an argument to be made, and I don't know if this is what people would think, but in the ECHL, and I know the age, like I doubt this is at the forefront, but I think there's a growing belief in the NHL amongst NHL fans that refs are getting over, way too involved in games, whether it's the game managing and or whatever it may be. So I think that when this sort of thing happens, they're kind of like, why is this guy inserting himself in the story? So I'll give you an example, like journalists. We're always told to never. Uh, this is this is kind of a gray area rule. In, in I would change. never insert myself into the story. No, I'm kidding. I do it all the time. Well, but that but it, it, things are changing. I think that there, there's something to be said. Like I think it's stupid if someone will never do it. I think there's sometimes where you should. But the general age old, age old rule is you never insert yourself in the story. And I think that applies to referees. You know, my brother actually was watching 24 uh, seven Penn's Caps. Remember the HBO series from years and years ago? Yeah. There's a t- there's a clip of Tim Peel saying something like way worse than what he was actually canned for. And like, no one made a big stink about it. Right. Like at the time, or maybe, maybe it was lost in translation, whatever. But I think that over the last couple of years, I, I think there's, there, there, there's something to be said about the referee becoming like far too involved, far too insert in the game when it's like, you're not supposed to be like, that's just like not the part of the game. You're not supposed to be a character. The fact we know Wes McCauley, it's like kind of funny because of like the way he calls the game, but he's also a crap referee. If, if you if you monitor the NHL referees the way that baseball has umpires, Wes McCauley would be one of the worst. I, I totally agree. I mean, there's yeah. a lost art of of understanding situational refereeing. <laughs> if you yeah. understanding what the you know, just of course we always say a penalty in the first period is a penalty in the third period. Right. But longtime hockey fans also know That's that fine. if it's tied at three with a minute left in the third totally. period, you judge the situation. So I totally get it. But yeah. I'll bring up something that I, I, I said last week, which is you have to bear in mind, they are fast tracking a lot of referees. So Dan Kelly, yeah, I mean, yeah, he, was, he was playing a few years ago. Okay. Also in that same game, one of the linesmen was Kyle Flemington. He was playing for a team I covered maybe five years ago so the fact that these guys are calling nhl games against guys that they played against there's a bias well i'm not going to say there's a bias but you're setting yourself up for For some potential trouble because they don't have a lot of experience and who knows maybe they don't like this bias is a strong word my bad i want to correct that i don't think that i don't even think i don't think that's true i don't think there's a bias i think that there can be like you know bunting's known as conscious bunting yaps okay it's what he does so whether Dan Kelly's on the other end of that or, or people just can't stand the guy, that could be annoying. But that said, I don't think you should, like, I don't think you should make some sort of rule where you can't ref when you play. Like, that'd be silly. Well, um, but, I mean, it's just the, the point is what I made last week, which is these guys need as much time in the totally. minors as it's they can point. get to understand these things. To me, it should be like players. Unless you are really a special talent, you start at the AA level, you move up to the AAA level, and then you move up to the NHL. But that's yeah. not what we're seeing. And a lot of that is because of the two-referee system and because there is a lack of available people to call games because they know all the BS that can come along with that stuff. Let's get to our prospect of the week, shall we? Absolutely. That's Josh Maniscalco of the Pittsburgh Penguins organization playing for the Wheeling Nailers. Six-foot-two defenseman, 23 years old. He's got 22 points in 25 games. Uh, you know, he, he's been doing this since the start of last year, totaling 75 points in 89 games, 10 playoff games of experience as well. What kind of player 
are we talking about in Matt Scalo? And is this someone that could be the next in a long list of players that have gone from the Wheeling to Wilkes-Barre to, Pitt, to Pittsburgh trifecta cycle? Right. Well, so first of all, it's Josh Manis Calco. Um, he's, um, you know, he's a, he's a very exciting player to watch. Uh, you know, offensive defenseman. Uh, he's, I, I feel like he doesn't maybe get noticed as much as he should probably because he's playing in Wheeling, which is one of the smallest markets and, and let's be frank, smallest attendances of, uh, the ECHL right now. This is obviously a Pittsburgh Penguins, uh, organization, uh, their, their AA team. So, um, you know, you mentioned it, Yeah, he puts up a lot of points. He does a lot on special teams. Uh, he's got, uh, of Wheeling's 18 power play goals they've scored so far. He has factored into 12 of them. So whenever Wheeling has a power play, you have to be cognizant of where he right. is. He's going to attack. He is going to shoot. He is going to pass. He's got some decent size. I believe he's six foot two, 205 pounds. So you, you just really have to account for him every time that he's on the ice in a special team situation or an offensive situation. With, with that in mind, is he someone where, so, so has he been recalled at all at any point? Well, so the backstory with him a little bit is he was an Arizona state guy and, okay. you know, Arizona state is sort of an interesting um, starting spot for me because you're starting to see a lot of players move from Arizona state, which is still a very young program. Oh, really? um, yeah. I believe they went division one in maybe 2016. I, I could be off on that. Um, so, you know, we're starting to see some players come from there. One of them is Tyler Bush. Obviously there are guys at the higher levels, but Maniscalco was a guy who came out and signed with the Penguins after his second year with Arizona state. Now the connections here are varied. He's from Pennsylvania. He played alongside Mario Lemieux's son. And Mario Lemieux called him to actually make a sales pitch, like you should come sign with our organization. So he did that. Are you then... sure he wasn't just like arranging carpool? <laughs> like, I don't know. What do you mean? He could have just been like, you should come. Like your parents haven't been driving very often. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. Um, so, uh, but, you know, who knows? To answer your question, has he played a lot? He's played, I believe, 10 games at, at Wilkes-Barre Scranton. Uh, so not a lot, certainly not as many as you would have expected for a guy to take the path that he did. But we also have to factor in the pandemic. Absolutely. Did, but, you know, I don't know. Did that help him or hurt him? Like usually we saw guys get call up sooner uh, because of the pandemic, but that hasn't quite worked out for him. Uh, so, you know, I think the big question is if he had it to do over again, would you still come out knowing that you were going to spend the the majority of the next two to three years in the ECHL, or would he maybe have stayed at Arizona state watched his stock skyrocket even more? I don't know, but what I see, That's I must point. be seeing something different than the scouts because whenever he's on the ice, I am noticing him. I don't see him as any sort of defensive liability. I see him as a guy that's got really good speed. That's really opportunistic. Um, he will make plays from the point. I saw him last week. Um, really head into the slot during the power play, uh, set up a goal. I think it came off a rebound of a shot that he took. Uh, so I, I don't know what I'm seeing that the scouts aren't, but I don't feel that he would be long for this level. I mean, I keep voting him all-star. Um, I think I may have put him first-team all-star last year. So yeah, he's he's definitely a player I think a lot of. 
Well, it's interesting too because if he uh, in the event that he in the event that he does not get recalled or say doesn't doesn't play well, that guy's got Europe written all over him. Like that's a guy where a European team goes, we'll offer you a sizable amount of money because you're you've proven to tra- to score really well at the ECHL level. The same thing in college, they're not giving you a chance. We will, right? Like that's what I would think upon looking at him from the outset. But I also wonder too, further to your point, is doesn't Wheeling and Wilkesbury don't they have a pretty good affiliation agreement? And maybe there could be some sort of having there playing twenty five minutes a night until January and see where we're at because. It won't be long until Wilkes-Barre probably will be a defenseman, given that Ty Smith, if all goes well, is probably going to be recalled soon. They'll probably move someone. They appear all year. Joseph, who's emerged. So if you look at the trickle down, I feel like there's there should be the carpet laid out for Mascal to make that jump at some point. I mean, to me, look, if you've made an investment in a guy like this, and he's still Fair. still young, I believe 23, to me, to your point, I, I agree. I'd be like, look, let's give this guy an extended look at the AHL and see what he's got before his contract is up. Yeah. Um, it, and something I've thought about with him is, you know, I've been at this a while, and I remember 20, 25 years ago, um, if you, like, there was a dearth of quality offensive defensemen, even at the AAA level. If you found a guy like that, and if you're a longtime um you know, fan of the minor leagues, you might remember a guy like Frederick Bouchard. This is a a, a pretty good analysis, uh, or a, a pretty good comparison, excuse me. So players like that, they could always find a place at the AAA level. I don't feel like that's it now. Like now they feel like, hey, offensive defensemen, they're a little bit more a dime a dozen. What we need is the big hulking six foot five defenseman who can defend and can score, who can play right. the penalty kill and the power play. Yeah. And so I feel like it's changed a little bit, but I still look at a guy like Josh Maniscalco and I'm like, that's an AHL player every day of the week to me. I'm not entirely sure what he's doing down here, but I, I do believe to your point that they'll probably give him a look at some point. And just a couple other notes on him is he, um, he played with the uh, U.S. developmental team, which was you know competing in the USHL. Um, he played prep hockey at Shattuck St. Mary's. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen any prep hockey of the States. Like I haven't seen a bunch, but years ago, I went to do a story on a guy named Karch Bachman, who was drafted by the Panthers. He played for Culver Military Academy, which is in Indiana. They were playing Shattuck St. Mary's. So I went out to this game and it was crazy. I mean, there were NHL scouts everywhere. Oh yeah. And I hadn't seen anything like that at a prep game. Since Eric Lindros in the early '90s, I went to see Eric Lindros play for Copyware. I mean, it wasn't a prep team, but I mean, it was. It, there was a line out the door. Every NHL scout in, in the world was there. So, I feel like with Maniscalco, you've got a really good pedigree. Still young. I'm not so sure that I would put Europe on him yet because I still feel like he could absolutely ascend up with some organization, even if it's not Pittsburgh. But you know, still a lot of time left in the season to see what he's got. For our team of the week this week, we're going to look at the Newfoundland Growlers, the affiliate of the Toronto Maple Leafs. And there's never a shortage of, of prospects to talk about with them. The Toronto Maple Leafs are well-documented in their development and investment with the ECHL affiliate. One of the most famous cases would be Mason Marchment, who they had uh, in the they got from the ECHL. They didn't. Uh, so Marchment was signed to an AHL deal, and they had him with the Solar Bears. But with the Growlers, you know, we signed guys like Christians, Rubens, play games, 
Um, Matt Caldwell's played in the game before. The list goes on and on of, of former growlers that have played um, in the NHL through the pipeline. And to start out, none other than Zach O'Brien, the mayor of Newfoundland, is who we have to talk about. I saw at the uh, Toronto-Belleville game uh, about two or three weeks ago, maybe even longer, the, time, the days blend together. But same as when I you know, last covered the Marlies three years ago. Zach O'Brien, you call him up on speed dial, best service you can get, steps into an NHL game, he'll score for you. It's crazy that he, he's uh, still in the ECHL and, and arguably a – if there's ever a, a term franchise player in the ECHL, I think he, he checks all the box, boxes there. Well, there aren't a lot of those quote-unquote franchise players, but he absolutely is one. Uh, just to give you some stats, he's leading the league in scoring right now, 11 goals, 41 points in 23 games, 30 years old. So for ECHL, that's fairly uh, seasoned, let's put it that way. Right. Uh, five foot 11, um, you know, really fast, really good shot, nose for the net, finds open spaces. I don't know if this is the craziest comparison I've ever made, but I was watching him play the other day. And even though he is a right-handed shot, <clears throat> excuse me, he didn't look that far off from like an ECHL Dylan Larkin to me. Like I saw him come in, basically circumvent the entire defense, rip a, a big shot from the right circle, found just the the tiniest little hole for, for the goalie to, to miss it. And then later in the game had another goal where it was just kind of other side of the ice, just spun, caught the goalie off guard. And it was really similar to a game I'd just seen Dylan Larkin play. So, you know, maybe not the, the greatest comparison, but you know, you can see when he turns it on, he has a lot of those skills. And, you know, like, like you mentioned, a guy that you can pluck, put him in the AHL, he's not going to look out of place. He's going to be fine. He's had success in Europe, but he's definitely for Newfoundland, which has, you know, been one of the early great teams again this year. He's just sort of the, the straw that stirs the drink. Another guy that is an interesting case is Pavel Gogolev. Probably, I, I would say, one of the regrets of the Toronto Maple Leafs organization and signing him when they did. And I, I say that not just to slight on the player, but because of how much of, of a currency it is to have those open contract slots and whatnot. They signed Gogolev after a strong, you know, stint during the COVID season. I believe it was 12 points in 13 games. Um, yeah, it was, uh, what was it? Let's see here. Yeah, 12 points, 13 games. I was right. I should trust myself. 12 points, 13 games with the Marlies. Signed to an ELC. Last year, he slipped between Newfoundland and Toronto. Now he's only played one game in Toronto. He's back on the back in the Maritimes. You know, what's the deal with him? Like, where is he treading? I mean, he looks really strong to me at the ECHL level. I mean, oh, obviously, I mean, he's he's last I looked, he was on an 11 game point scoring streak, six goals and 19 points in 12 games. Uh, when I queue up film of him, what I see is a guy that's really got some nice stick handling and stick work. Yeah. He can make some moves. He's got some speed, got a little bit of size. He's six foot one. I mean, not the biggest, but he's the word I used was shifty. Like yeah. he was just shifting his way around players at this level. And, you know, only 22 years old. So, you know, I, I still see a lot of potential with a guy like that. For and sure. you know, to your original point, I mean, Newfoundland is just stacked with guys on higher level contracts. I looked at it and at one point this season, they had the following guys all on NHL or AHL contracts at the same time. Pavel Gogolev, Dryden McKay, Luke Cavillan, Brandon Kapchuk, Michael Joyo, Nolan Walker, Zach Solo, Oren Santazo, Brandon Cruz, Brett Budgel, Zach O'Brien, 
Jack Badini, Keenan Southers, and Chris Martinet. So that is an insane a number of players on NHL or AHL contracts for an ECHL team. I've only seen that and a I should handful mention, of times. Yeah. Half about three or four of those guys are Moose property. The Growlers do share an affiliate with the Moose, so sure. that team is a powerhouse because you got two affiliates that are, that are putting a lot of stock there. Yeah, yeah, but you you asked me on one of these shows, you know, what are teams at this level trying to get from their affiliation? And there are some frustrations when you have that many guys because you can lose them all and then be, what do I do now? But for most teams, I mean, they would salivate at something like that. So we've seen it with some teams, Cincinnati, uh, Toledo, occasionally they'll get a, a, a large number of those guys. And, you know, for some other show, we should talk about all the benefits that you really get for salary cap relief and things like that at this level. But what Newfoundland is doing in a lot of respects from an affiliation respect is sort of the model that a lot of other teams would, would really like to get to. So another person that you mentioned there was Luke Cavillan. He, he's off to a really strong start with them. And I would have thought that Dryden McKay would have been the one taking the bull by the horns, but Cavillan's he's got that crease on lock. Yeah, I mean, he's looked really good. 10-3-0 with a 9-26 save percentage and one sh shutout. Something to keep in mind, and, and maybe, you know, just guessing here, but he played for their coach, Eric Wellwood, in juniors for the Flint Spirits. So I feel like this has got to be a guy that their coach trusts. And I, I watched a game last week. They were playing, uh, I believe it was Worcester, and they were down big. And he came up with a big acrobatic save, and that really turned the game around. I believe Newfoundland still lost 6-4, to four, but they made this huge comeback, really took control of the game. And it all started with this big acrobatic cavil and save. And I think he might have even got an assist on that play. So, you know, he's the kind of guy that you look for that's going to, you know, make not just the saves that you expect, but some that you don't expect to keep you in some games. And so I really like what he's been doing so far. And, you know, playing in Newfoundland, there's some things that we should mention. I mean, the travel is obviously very significant. Uh, when you play Newfoundland, you're probably going in for a three-game set. Uh, so, for instance, Fort Wayne went in there a few uh, years ago. Big travel. You're there for three games. You don't know what's going to happen because obviously you start not liking a team when you see them three or three out of four nights. So, um, you know, Newfoundland won the Kelly Cup 2019, their inaugural season. Lots of funny stories about that. They actually had to make a replica Kelly Cup because the Colorado Eagles never returned it. Uh, that became a big national story at that point. Uh, I believe they did finally get that cut back from the Eagles who had moved up to the AHL. And, um, you know, the, the guy that owns uh, Newfoundland, uh, Dean McDonald, you know, now he owns three teams, Trois-Rivières and also the Iowa Heartlanders. But Newfoundland's been the most successful. Wait, what? Yeah, yeah. So same ownership groom owns three teams in the ECHL. What's the Why? Well, uh, why? I, I don't know. I guess we'd have to ask them that. But, you know, if, That's you interesting. Are, if you are interested in, you know, getting into minor league sports, you know, there's definitely some benefits to he went into some markets that he felt were very strong. Newfoundland, obviously a historic market. Uh, Trois-Rivières, you know, I think you can debate whether it was a great idea or not such a great idea, because are you going to compete with major juniors and all the right. other things that are around there or not. And I've heard differing stories about that. Iowa, they had a new arena. 
Uh, but you know, we could talk about this for a long time. But one thing that I did hear is pre-pandemic, Newfoundland was subsidizing the travel of any team that came out to Newfoundland because it was such they recognized it was a burden to ask, okay. let's just say, you know, let's let's just say if you're coming from Allen, Texas and you got to go to Newfoundland, they recognize it's a huge travel expense. So what we're going to do is help subsidize that for you. But what nobody expected, of course, was the pandemic. So what I've heard from multiple sources this year, they are not subsidizing the travel, that the league entirely has kind of stepped up to help everybody out, recognizing that not only is Newfoundland a good market, but they have an owner who owns three teams in the league. And we probably want to help keep him pretty happy and be good partners, understand that there's a lot of expense there. But, you know, there's a lot of different issues with owning three teams, some of them positive, some of them negative. But what Newfoundland has done overall uh, is really strong. And there are some little things like if you check out their TV broadcast, it is so high quality compared to most teams in the league. Like they really get that idea of how to do things. And, and most people, you know, love their their branding and their logos and whatnot. So, uh, but the, the the talent they have on the ice right now with the guys we've talked about is really significant. Absolutely. Um, one last guy we should we should get into is uh, Oren Cantazo. Uh, Sorry, I usually am good with the. What, how do you pronounce the last name? I believe it's Oren Cantazo. Cantazo. Okay. Yes. With the Marlies right now, what what led to him being called up? Well, I think just success. You know, thirteen goals, twenty-seven points in seventeen games. I mean, you're you're going to get a look, right? And you know, that's one of the things when you've got all these guys on AHL contracts, you don't have to worry about waivers, right? You know, you can send them back and forth and and be comfortable with it. See what a guy needs to work on, and you know, one of the big things that you see when a guy gets sent down to the ECHL is, are they going to take the advice that they took at the AC, that they received at the ACHL level? and um, apply it when they're back in the ECHL, or are they going to have what people around here call AHL-itis, which means I'm disappointed to be back here. My head is not where it should be. Even though I have the talent to be at the next level, I'm not really applying it. So um, I think what we've seen with Newfoundland is these guys are obviously embracing it because when they come down, they continue to succeed. They continue to put up big points. And, you know, they made they won a cup and then they made it to the semifinals last year. So whatever they're doing right now is is working. And I do think coaching has a lot to do with that because there is an art to understanding when a player comes back from the AHL that their head may not be exactly where you want it at. And clearly he's done a good job with uh, making sure that doesn't happen. Close things off. Let's get to our news and notes, news, notes, quotes, coast to coast with Justin Cohn. Uh, have at it, buddy. All right. Well, so first off, we had a goalie goal in the ECHL last week. Francois Broussard of the Maine Mariners netted one against the Adirac, Adirondack Thunder. Excuse me. Uh, Brassard, he's on AHL contract with Providence. So he's in the Bruins system. And whenever you get a goalie goal, everybody gets excited. So why to give him a little little tip of the hat to that Idaho Steelheads. That's a team that we have talked about a few times on this program because they are off to such a good start. But let's talk about something they have done off the ice. They have sold out 11 of 13 games so far this season. Wow. Now, Idaho is not one of those teams that you typically talk about with big attendance. Uh, they're still only ninth in the league with an average of 5,038 per game. But seems the fans there are pretty excited about the start that they're off to, and they should be. 
Wichita Thunder, that's a team we have not yet talked about on the show, but Quinn Preston is on an eight-game point-scoring streak for the Thunder. But to put that into context, eight-game point-scoring streak, that's only the fifth longest in the league this season. Idaho's Owen Hedrick, who was our prospect of the week last week, he is currently on a 14-game point-scoring streak. Last week, we brought up the South Carolina Stingrays, and I talked about the home ice advantage there and how happy I was that they were back playing at the North Charleston Coliseum. This is my opportunity to maybe say, whoops, they had a game postponed last week due to poor ice conditions. Unfortunately, that is something that happens more often than it should at this level, and it happened to South Carolina last week. The Indy Fuel, they have been a very surprisingly good team this year. And Alex Weedman has eight goals in his last four games, excuse me, eight points in his last four games. Eight goals would have been even better, but eight points in his last four games. But something to mention, the Fuel and the Cincinnati Cyclones, who were sort of dominating the Central Division to start the season, they have lost some ground because the Fort Wayne Comets have won five in a row. The Toledo Walleye has started to turn things around. And the Kalamazoo Wings, that's a team that we probably have not talked enough about. Uh, they are 7-1-0 when scoring first, but they don't always need to score first. Last night, they rallied from a 3 to nothing deficit to defeat the Cyclones 4-3 to in overtime. So Kalamazoo, that was not a team I expected to really notice a lot coming into this year, but they've got a new coach in Joel Martin, and he is doing a good job so far. And congratulations to Justin Taylor. Uh, he is a player that you sort of hate to play against but would love to have on your team. He became the Kalamazoo Wings all-time leading goal scorer. Wanted to give a shout to Reading Royals goaltender Pat Nagel. Uh, he's a guy I know pretty well, played in Fort Wayne for a lot of years. He has won seven of his last eight starts with the Royals. And Pat Nagel, for those who do not know him, uh, he has been in a lot of different NHL organizations, but he was on the U.S. Olympic team roster last year, which was kind of a big deal for a guy to go straight from basically the ECHL to the U.S. Olympic team. Uh, so uh, he's off to a, a really good start right now. Arvin Atwal of the Cincinnati Cyclones was suspended four games last week, sort of akin to what we were talking about with Dan Kelly. He was escorted off the ice, then decided he was going to step back onto the ice from the penalty box to, to attempt to fight a player who had no interest in that. And then Atwal gets suspended four games. One of those games was because it was his third game misconduct of the season. So that's uh, you know one of those things you don't like to see. The All-Star Classic is coming up January 16th at Norfolk, Virginia. One thing to notice with that is the ECHL for the last few years has been bringing in female hockey players to participate in the events so they have players from the premier hockey federation they'll have um let's see sydney brox and Anne sophie bate and uh, they also have players from the professional women's hockey players association emily brown and sam kogan so i'm not always the biggest fan of the way the echl does their uh all-star classic because i tend to think they don't necessarily get the best players they get the players that they deem to be the best prospects they're going to do, I believe it's a three-on-three -three tournament, rally scoring, but uh, they are trying to do some things to really market it and to also acknowledge the strides in the women's game, and this is the way they do that. And for that, I applaud it. And uh, wanted to bring up one more thing before we go. It is the 
20th anniversary of something that you probably don't know, and that is the 1-0 Joe Franke game. So what is that, you ask? You've probably, it, through the years, I think we've become a little desensitized to equipment managers and emergency goaltenders getting a chance to play in the NHL because, you know, injuries or whatnot. 1-0 Joe Franke was probably the first one to really do this on an international stage. This was in Fort Wayne. Uh, I'll give you the abridged version of the story, which was the night before the Nashville Predators. I'll make myself a part of the story. The Nashville Predators had a scout at the Comets game. Guy had never been there before. He's sitting next to me. He says, anybody you think I should take a look at? I just said, the best player here is Fort Wayne's goaltender. As luck would have it, after this game, Fort Wayne's goaltender gets called up to the Milwaukee Admirals. I don't know whether I had anything to do with it. I'd like to think I do. So Fort Wayne is left with one goaltender. That is Pokey Reddick, who won a Stanley Cup with the Edmonton Oilers. So the next night, Reddick gets ill during the second period. Uh, never exactly found out why that was, but we think that he got um, ill from a, a diet he was on. So who did Fort Wayne have to put into their goal? They put in their 42-year-old equipment manager named Joe Franke. Now, here's the difference between this and most stories that you hear about e-bugs. He didn't have any playing experience. He had not played at a significant level since high school, and even then it was not as a goaltender, but he had been a body during practice several times through the years. The shooter so tutor. Yes, he was the shooter tutor, exactly. So he goes into the game. Uh, I don't remember the exact numbers, but was very good. Gave up. One goal, I believe. It goes into a shootout. He makes a save in the final round of the shootout that was as good as any save you will see anybody make. Fort Wayne wins the game with the 42-year-old equipment manager in net. I kid you not, this became international news. I have never been so happy to see my story plagiarized. It was actually read word for word on NPR by Paul Harvey. Um, so people ask me a lot, what's the the greatest thing you've covered. I've covered four Super Bowls, all kinds of things. I always say this. It was an hour and a half after the game. I go to the locker room. Not a person had left the building. They were still huddled around the Fort Wayne locker room, chanting Joe Franke's name. And probably the best question I've ever asked in my career is I go into the locker room. I say, Joe, what was your pregame meal? And he says, you know, it's funny that you asked that. I got here at 6 a.m. because I'm washing the jerseys. I'm doing all the stuff that I usually do. Never got a chance to eat. So during the first period, I'm sitting on the bench and I'm drinking Mountain Dews and eating hot dogs. Just trying. And then he goes into the game. So when the, all this made international news, that was what a lot of people sort of honed in on was the fact that he was eating dogs and drinking dew. I can remember Barry Melrose laughing about that on the air. So years later, they actually had to call me and ask my permission. They were going to make a bobblehead of Joe Franke and they wanted to know if they could put little Mountain Dew cans and hot dogs on it. And they did that. So anyway, this happened 20 years ago. That was a moment that springboarded what had been a mediocre Fort Wayne team to eventually winning the championship that year. It was not in the ECHL. It was in the United Hockey League. But I feel like it should be acknowledged because Fort Wayne, an ECHL team, and this is still something that gets talked about a lot and it has to be made into a movie someday. I'm shocked that it hasn't been, but I wanted to educate you with this uh, this story. 
producer Connor says he, he hopes you got one of those. And I think he means bobblehead. Oh, absolutely. Someday we'll talk about my extensive bobblehead collection. But yes, I'm very proud of that one. It has uh, a little mock-up of the Journal Gazette. That's uh, unreal. Yeah, yeah. So uh, very proud of that. But it was a, seriously an incredible moment. And every time I see, because it, it happens like once a year now, it feels like an emergency backup goalie go into a game. I'm always like, yeah, that's awesome. But I saw one that was a little bit better. Right, yeah. Like the the U Sports goalie isn't all that cool when he's playing like high level hockey. It's better when they're washing jerseys and then becoming a brick wall. Justin, thank you for that amazing story to end things off. And thank you for everything for the last couple of episodes. And to listeners, thank you for, for tuning in. We're taking a bit of a break, but once the new year rolls around, we'll be back and ready for some more ECHL content. Thank you to everyone. Happy holidays and, and have a good new year.